Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, swimming with giant basking sharks in Irish waters, that French-UK fishing war off the Channel Islands, and ambitious new plans for Galway docks. Some really dramatic close-up footage of giant basking sharks in Irish waters was released by the School of Natural Science in Trinity College yesterday. The short film was shot by Nicholas Payne. He's assistant professor in the school and he is a shark expert who's been working in Ireland now for more than two years. He's been studying and tagging basking sharks and he told me about this encounter with this gentle giant. Yeah, so that was really close to shore, like as in five to ten metres from, from shore, near, um, not too far from Clonakilty down in Cork. So it, the, it was a little bay, I think it's called Red Strand, which is down in, in West Cork. So um, yeah, an incredible part of the world. And, and we were, as I say, so so close to the shore, this big, beautiful animal swimming around for, it was there for in that bay for a couple of hours. And um we we tagged it with one of our electronic tags the previous day, so we sighted the animal again and thought, oh, look, we'd love to get in and, and take a good look at it to see see how it was behaving and see where the tag was sitting on the animal. And, um, oh, look, it was just unbelievable the experience. I mean, this huge, peaceful, beautiful animal, um, you know, swimming and feeding with us for about five minutes was just something I've – you know that that experience will stay with me for a long time like i've as part of my work i've been really lucky to see a lot of amazing animals and and interact with incredible sharks in in hawaii and and big white sharks in in south australia but this was just something else altogether you know this this experience with these big basking sharks in in cork was just unbelievable what size is the basking shark? It's it's a very very big animal. Yeah, they're huge. So they're the they're the second biggest shark species in the world. So whale the whale shark, which is the a, a huge tropical species that's also a filter feeder. So they also eat plankton. But basking sharks number two on the list, and in the, so this the global um, of all species in the world. It's the second largest, and they grow up to about 12 metres. I think the biggest one was about 12 metres. The ones that we see most commonly around around Ireland this time of year are more the six to six to eight metres range, uh, which is an absolute giant. You know, these are these are incredibly massive animals, and when, when you see them. Whether you see them from the boat or from the water, the, the scale of, of these things is just breathtaking. It, it really is. So, yeah, they're a big animal, all right. How common are they? Because just about two weeks ago, I saw another video which was taken in Baltimore Harbour, very nearby of a basking shark interacting with a kayaker and being chased around by a dolphin. Yes. Yeah, so they, they're patchy is probably a good way to describe it. So we don't really see them in Ireland from let's say september through to march they, they're not really on our shores at all we only really see them uh in irish waters from around now or from a few weeks ago like maybe or um sort of mid-april through to to late summer and what we tend to see is you know they they're around in, in reasonable groups um for short periods of time and then they then they move on so 
we last week in court we were we were out looking for them for about three days and we probably saw a dozen different individuals so at when the when the conditions are right and when the weather's nice and calm and they're up and feeding you you can be lucky enough to to see three or four of them i mean when we were swimming with that animal um, near Clonakilty there last week, there were two other animals in the same small bay at the same time. They seem completely unafraid of people. They are, which is which is good and bad, Fergal, because I think it's 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 amazing for us because it means that if you just sit there peacefully and and don't disturb them, you can have a really close, amazing encounter with the animals because they they'll quite happily just um swim past you and feed you know really close but it's also bad because they they're often not as aware of of oncoming boats as as would be good for their um for their population so what what often happens is they they'll be feeding at the surface and they won't be very um cautious of, of an oncoming vessel and they can get hit by it and that can often cause really severe damage and, and often mortality so it's it's an unfortunate situation that this this species is is classified as endangered the population we think is still declining even though the the targeted fishery of that species has more or less dried up in yeah, the last few because decades. Because they so, were hunted tens and fifty years yeah, ago, maybe. Yeah, they were. They in, were so in a, in a um, traditional the, way. I think like people on the Aran Islands and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you can go to some of the. Um, I've been to a couple of pubs on the Aran Island, and there are amazing photos. You know, black and white photos from from back in the day where um where there were fishermen doing this for a living. You know, so they were a really important resource for those kind of communities. But um, yeah, we started realizing more recently that the, that doing that kind of thing is is you know was impacting the population, and so thankfully most of that stopped. Um, but we still have these these ongoing issues, like um, where we're unintentionally killing the animals. So the boat strikes, like I mentioned, is is one thing, but also they are quite prone to um, bycatch. You know, so being being incidentally caught in in fishing gear and then. And then dying as a result of that, so they still they still have some some pressures that we should you know be um be really conscious of. You also found two dead basking sharks recently and study those. What, what was that circumstance? Yeah, so that was kind of sad. I mean, like it was. I've only been in Ireland for two years. Um, I'm a shark biologist, but but that was the first time I'd seen basking sharks myself in the flesh, and and it was kind of sad for me to my first experience for them to be two dead animals that had washed up and and it was unusual in that it's not super common to see to see specimens wash up um together like that so that these were two animals separated by something like five kilometers of coastline and where was that I think they washed. yeah so the first one was in inchidoni beach uh, right near Clonakilty, and then the second one was only about five kilometres west, um, near near Harbour View there. So, yeah, we we got the we got notified for some from some colleagues that um, that these animals had washed up, and so we thought, well, this is an opportunity for us to try to learn something about the biology of the animals because because they're reasonably um, low abundance and also 
they live in the ocean and they're hard to, you know, they're hard to observe. We don't have a huge amount of information on some of their basic like anatomical features. So we went down there, myself and my PhD student, Hayley Dalton, went down and, and worked with the Irish whale and dolphin group. And um, we just, yeah, did a, did a few dissections and tried to learn as much as we could about the, the way that the animals built, you know, because getting information like that on, on their physiology and their anatomy helps us understand much more clearly how they interact with their environment and if we if we can build as much information on that kind of thing as possible, then it, it might help us to try to protect them a little bit more and and um, you know stop stop some of the the impacts that we're seeing. Where can we see the basking shark video? Well, I've put it up on Twitter because I was just so incredibly overwhelmed and thought this is just incredible i I just have to share this with everyone so it's been on twitter but it's also we did a press release recently and i think um there's a clip of about 40 seconds that's readily available on on a lot of different um outlets so um professor nicholas payne of trinity college dublin and you can see that film on his twitter account at nick l payne or on the tcd website we'll also put a link to it on the seascapes website a fishing row between French fishermen and the UK all this week has been a tabloid headline writer's dream. Royal Navy gunboats were sent to the area around Jersey when fishermen threatened to blockade the port. But not all is as it seems. Journalist John Litchfield was in Normandy today speaking to those fishermen when I caught up with him. I'm in uh, a little town called Grandville, which is in, in the marsh part of Normandy, um, at the foot of the Cottontown Peninsula, and about 12 miles, perhaps less, across the sea from Jersey, which you can see from the cliffs above here. And it looks like it's part of Normandy, you know, which it kind of is. And Jersey was part of the Dukedom of Normandy. Historically, has the only part that still remains uh, the possession of, of the Duke of uh, Normandy, who is now the Queen Elizabeth. And could you just explain to us what's been going on over in the last few days about this fishing row, which has its roots in Brexit? Yeah, it has its roots in Brexit in a sense, but it also has other roots and is much older than that. Uh, for, for centuries, the fishing rights around the Channel Islands, or Ile anglo Normande, as the French call them, um, were um, controlled by local uh, agreements, uh, bilateral agreements between France and the different islands. And that has been the case up till up till last December, when um, the agreement was made between the Britain and the EU on fishing rights post Brexit. And for some reason, the British government and the Jersey government and the other Channel Island governments decided at that point to merge the, the Channel Island situation in with the rest of the waters around the British Isles, and uh, and and in, in off the European coasts as well. Um, and so the whole thing has changed. So it has become part of of the whole Brexit argument in a way. Even so, the, the, the French boats, as was agreed generally um, in December, do have the right still to fish up to six miles and three miles in places from the Channel Island coast. They were supposed to have historic rights to fish where they'd fished before for at least five years. But then, lo and behold, when the licenses were issued by the Isle of Jersey, and I'll come back to just the Isle of Jersey in a moment, uh, last Friday week, um, the number of hours given to the fishermen or days was much, much less. The ones I was just talking to on the key here were given 17 days and 22 days a year to fish when normally they'd fish more than 100 days a year in, in those waters. 
What's interesting, though, is that only Jersey is the problem. Guernsey, which also covers the, the territory of the little other smaller islands, Alderney and Sark, has had a perfectly good and friendly relations with France and has continued to continue the negotiation, and there's no problem with them. Jersey has had a kind of very aggressive and difficult relationship with France now for a couple of years, and the people on this side, anyway, say that there's the, the government in Jersey has been taken over by a, a local political faction that is very sort of Brexitish and very nationalistic and anti-French. What happens during the week? The French, those French boats threatened to blockade a part of Jersey, but then the British Navy became involved. Well, the blockade was kind of always slightly exaggeration. A hundred boats from this side, the northern side, but also from the Breton side, congregated off the harbour in Saint-Elier, which is the, the, the capital of Jersey and the only port in Saint-Jersey. And they did enter the port for a while, and they sort of, for about 10 minutes, blocked um, a vessel from leaving. But there never was their intention to block the port. It was always to do the French thing. You know, it's the protest. You, if there's something you're angry about, you protest very visibly, uh, and that's what they did. And uh, yes, the British press this morning has been full of headlines saying French boats chased away by the two British naval vessels. I'll I'll just read you some of the headlines, okay? The Daily Star, Allo, allo, French fishermen retreat after Brexit battle, and then the the Sun takes Sprat. Uh, the Daily Mail, La Grande Surrender. After our gunboats go to Jersey, French fishermen execute a familiar manoeuvre. And then the Metro says, smash and crab. Well, it's all nonsense, you won't be surprised to hear. I mean, the, the boats went across. They spent four or five hours there in the harbour in saint and No attempt was made to remove them. They stayed there as long as they wanted to stay, and they sailed back. And the guys I was just talking to on the quay here, who were part of the flotilla yesterday, said that they scarcely saw the, the British naval vessels. They passed in the distance, but there was no exchange between them. There's no question of them being chased, and they didn't stay a minute left than they intended to stay in, in the Jersey Harbour. It was a protest. They made their protest. Now they want the French government to follow through with some of the threats that they've made, including cutting off 90% of the electricity to the Isle of Jersey, which uh, the French maritime minister suggested during the week might happen if this could not be resolved. I think that is hugely over the top as a threat to cut off the electricity to 100,000 people in Jersey or more in the summer. But um, I suspect that this dispute will be resolved pretty quickly. I think that the Jersey government has rather shocked by uh, the response to, to what it's done with these licenses, which clearly was a provocation. You know, the idea that it was a mistake on the part of the French government in not providing the right information or a misunderstanding, which is what the Jersey government is now saying, is essentially the beginning of a climb down. You know, they, they, they made a provocation. They gave the French much less than they were due under the rules, and the EU has confirmed that now. And so now I suspect there will be another negotiation and the licenses will be changed. You were with those fishermen involved at the moment on that uh, harbour in Normandy. What is the feeling among them? Well, they, they were they were interesting, actually, because they were saying, yes, we want the French government now to take over. We want them to cut off the lights in Jersey, if that's necessarily what we're going to do. But they were making other points as well. For instance, they said that no one has reported that there were a dozen boats from the Jersey side Jersey fishing boats, which were on our side and supported us yesterday, who have been as furious about what has happened as the boats on this side, for the simple reason that 90% of the Jersey catch is delivered to French ports, and at the moment they're blocked from delivering that in retaliation for for this license problem. So they are saying that we're not being allowed to work either. You know, why? And this is all being pushed, they say, the Jersey boats and and the Norman boats by a very small group of very sort of Brexit-oriented, very nationalist, partly fishing-related, but retired fishermen who've who've become powerful within the Jersey government in recent years. 
and has very little to do with the reality on the ground. And essentially they were saying, well, there are worse problems in Jersey than this. You know, why, is not, why are people not worried about the fact that Jersey has become a kind of uh, a, a crossroads for drug trafficking in Europe? Why is people not concerned that these people are sort of multi-billionaires who are not paying their taxes and live in Jersey? That's a far more interesting issue than, than the fish. Why don't you just let us get on with, with what we've done for centuries? John Litchfield in Normandy. This week, Galway Port unveiled their vision for a new future with a repurposed inner harbour and waterfront residential developments. The port is hoping to upgrade its facilities and attract more maritime events in years to come. But while they're waiting a decision on Galway's long-planned harbour extension, Chief Executive Conor O'Dowd said that the residential and other developments could start in the meantime. Lorna Siggins spoke to Port of Galway Harbour Master Captain Brian Sheridan and Chief Executive Conor O'Dowd about the plans. My name is Conor O'Dowd. I'm currently the CEO of the Port of Galway. And we've just released to the public our vision of how the inner dock lands, some 17 acres of lands adjacent to the water's edge, could be redeveloped in the event of an expansion and relocation of the port to a new facility. This is a really exciting opportunity for Galway and indeed the wider west of Ireland and provides for significant new residential, commercial, cultural and recreational uh, buildings and promenades and pier fronts all in the heart of the city adjacent to the sea. We're looking forward to engaging with the public. There's a public consultation open at www galway-harbour.com I think I have that right and uh, we're obviously very interested in the views of the public and the stakeholders and that will allow us to inform our vision as we work to bring our plans to fruition. What I'll also say is that while much of the site can only be progressed in the event of a port relocation, part of the site, approximately 33%, currently is not used for harbour activities and we believe that that could be activated sooner rather than later and it's our intention to work with Goa City Council, the land development agencies and other agencies of the state and relevant government departments to activate that part of the site as quickly as possible and significantly in light of current needs that part of our vision is predominantly allocated towards residential accommodation. How many units are you talking about? And it's it's high rise you're talking about. It's not particularly high rise. I think, you know, in terms of the residential plate, most of the buildings will be approximately six storeys. But it's fair to say that the exact configuration of the residential buildings is a matter for further discussion with Galway City Council, the Land Development Agency and other statutory authorities. But I think it is clear, Lauren, I can say that, you know, you're in the region of up to 2,000 residents we would envisage being accommodated at the inner dock lands, which can be built ahead of the relocated port. The, the main cultural give, as it were, in terms of the vision for the inner dock lands is on the centre pier. And those of you who know Galway, there's a, a wonderful site which juts into the water just alongside Dock Road with water on three sides. We believe that it would be an absolutely marvellous space for an iconic cultural centre in the heart of Galway and we've earmarked that site uh, for a cultural facility. In terms of what type of facility that might be, Lorna, we're very open to that and indeed we would encourage the public to revert to us with the th- their thoughts on the type of cultural amenity that could be accommodated on that wonderful site. And you obviously are looking at the developments in offshore renewable energy and you feel there's an opportunity for Galway there. 
Yes, Lauren, it's something we've been very excited about. And in fairness, it's something that's really came to life, I suppose, over the last 18 months or so in terms of something that wouldn't have featured in terms of our, our agenda as such. But with the development of floating technology, just the, the improvements have been exponential in, in recent years. We've seen some exciting things happened off the coast of uh, Scotland. I, I noticed some commentary there from the French who are moving ahead with offshore wind. And it's clear from people we're talking to that the resource off the Atlantic coast is absolutely superb. And in terms of we're very excited about the opportunities our new port would have to deploy and service offshore wind in the Atlantic. And with obviously that's so many benefits for the West of Ireland in terms of, you know, the economic benefits, but also I think in terms of enabling Ireland to achieve its climate action targets. So that's something we're tremendously excited about, doing a lot of work on it. But we're very hopeful and confident that the new port will have a significant role to play in the deployment and development and service of offshore wind off the Irish West Coast, which genuinely I'm, I'm so excited about. I think it's a once in a generation economic opportunity for our region. From our perspective, the opportunity is so big, it's not one port. You know, I think what we've seen off the east coast of the UK, we've seen a revitalization of, you know, ports such as Hull, uh, up around Tyneside, we've seen Blyde, Newcastle, Sunderland, Great Yarmouth, I know, has been revitalised. You look into Scotland and Cromarty Firth, a small little body of water there, which is two ports thriving, servicing offshore wind. We're also seeing a little cluster develop in the southwest of Norway. So it, it's clear to me that, you know, it needs a multi-port solution. Uh, we're already seeing, you know, Arklow is, is, is already benefiting from the deployment of wind of, in the Irish Sea. And as I said, we believe that we're very well situated to play an important role, along with Shannon Foynes and indeed with other ports. We work with the other ports in terms of policy formulation and, you know, highlighting to stakeholders and government the wonderful opportunities that could accrue from the development of floating wind off our Atlantic coast. So Captain Brian Sheridan, you have the Celtic Explorer in and you have scrap metal being loaded and you have the existing marina, which is pretty busy. But what can the sailor expect to see in Galway when they sail in here in a few years' time? Well, of course, you know, when we look back at those two fantastic events, the two ocean races showcase the harbour uh, for what it could be into the future. I mean, we all know that the harbour has outgrown itself. The ships are just too, too large now and... Um, I have to take my hats off to the pilots who do a great job in, in what they do in getting those uh, oversized ships into our historic and medieval harbour. But for the uh, for the leisure sailor, the future is very bright. And, you know, Lorna, Galway Bay is probably our greatest natural amenity, yet we cannot get out there and enjoy it. I've talked about the blue playground and how kids stand at the sideline, which is the beach, looking out onto the bay and they can't get out there because there's no infrastructure everything has a tidal complexity and if you want to plan to go out on the water you have to think about oh what time is high water where can I launch a boat etc etc so uh, it's a generational change the development of the harbour the relocation of the commercial activities and it's going to open up the inner tidal basin for a sea fest every day and you know we have that potential to turn it on its head like we did for the two ocean races like we did for the three sea fests and uh, we have the round britain and ireland race coming uh, next may 
So I, I see the, the city finally turning around to face the ocean and to face the bay and realise that we do have an amazing amenity on our doorsteps and we should utilise it and, 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 and appreciate it all the more. So it is, the future is really bright for sailors into the future. So do you see Galway becoming the en fleur of the West Irish coast? Well, do you know what I see happening in the future? I think we are well capable of hosting the America's Cup uh, down the road you know the modern foiling boats they don't hardly need any water to float in okay they are very beamy because the foiling keels are stretch out make the boats quite beamy but there's no real depth of water there and uh, Galway Bay is a great amphitheatre like the harbour for, for showcasing uh, these kind of events and uh, I'd absolutely be there to put the, put the paw up for the, ocean, for the America's Cup in the future the two ocean races from Volvo were outstanding to the extent that the CEO, Knut Frostat, declared Galway as the best stopover ever in its 39-year history. You know, as John Killeen had a great line, who dares to dream? And if you don't dream, you'll, you'll achieve nothing. And uh, we dreamed about a port expansion many, many years ago, and it's a long time in the making. And as Connor just said, yeah, we had very positive news in that process towards the end uh, goal of a new port. And, uh, you know, we're tantalisingly close and, and why not? I mean, when the ocean races were held here, it was against all the odds. We were the smallest port in the world that the event had ever called to, yet it became the most successful. So why not uh, dare to dream and, and think of the America's Cup in Galway? Port of Galway Harbourmaster Captain Brian Sheridan finishing that report with Lorna Siggins. And while that's a great dream, I really can't see the modern America's Cup boats handling the Atlantic swell off Galway. It put pay to the much tougher boats in the Cruiser Challenge in 2018, which was held in the city. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast and it's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.